Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Truth Be Told Radio. Let's get started into our lesson, which is done by John MacArthur. And this one is about the Antichrist, and it says, Who is the Antichrist? Part 1. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. We have ahead of us a remarkable few weeks in uh, Second Thessalonians. Uh, this uh, ranges all the way from the horrors of uh, the coming man of lawlessness to the great doctrines of salvation, including election. This is a far-reaching portion of Scripture, sweeping back all the way to before time began to the very end of human history and the return of Christ, all in this one brief chapter. I've titled the message, The Coming Man of Sin, and basically that's drawn because the main character in the opening part of this chapter is identified in verse 3 as the man of sin or the man of lawlessness also called the son of destruction or the son of perdition. This is an individual who, in verse 4, it says, opposes God and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. It also tells us, in verse 8, that this lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. This one comes, verse 9 says, in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That This is an amazing person that we know as the Antichrist. The culmination of all of those who hate God and hate Christ, all false Christs, pseudo-Christs, false teachers, false prophets, all hypocritical liars who claim to be spokesmen for God but actually speak for Satan, all of them sort of are embodied in this one final horrific figure known as the final Antichrist. And while he is the subject of this text of Scripture, he is not a solitary monster. He is simply the final epitome of all that has been set against God and against Christ throughout all of human history. And to show you that, I want you to look at 1 John for just a moment, 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 18, John writes that it is the last hour. In other words, we're living in the last days, the messianic days since Christ has come, constitute the last days, the last hour. It is the last hour. 
And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Then down in verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So there is a final Antichrist, but there are in the meantime many Antichrists, and they are all defined as those who deny the true Christ and His relationship to His Father. In chapter 4, again of First John, and verse 3, we read, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Yes, there is a future embodiment of the ultimate Antichrist, but in the meantime, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. The second letter that John wrote, 2 John verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Anyone who denies the person and work of the Lord Jesus is an antichrist. That is the antichrist spirit that is in the world, the anti-God, anti-Christ spirit. There will be one final embodiment of that, a sort of collection of all the antichrists, false Christs, hypocrites, liars of all the ages rolled into one individual. John said to his readers, you have heard that antichrist is coming. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says in verse 5, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So John had informed his readers about the Antichrist, and Paul had done the same even when they were ministering among those people. It is common knowledge then among the believers in the New Testament that the Antichrist is coming. This man of sin, this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition, this son of destruction... But in the meantime, the anti-God, anti-Christ spirit is fully operational in the world. And they were aware of that, and we must be as well. Satan began to work against God uh, when he was in heaven, and he was still an angel. He worked against God, pulled off a rebellion, took uh, many of the angels with him. They became demons. He, he literally came to earth, brought the rebellion down here, brought about an encounter with Eve and Adam that resulted in the fall of the human race. This was the first um, attack on God, attack on Christ and divine purpose, and it happened in the garden, plunged the entire human race into sin and death and eternal judgment. In Genesis 6, Satan further tried to confound the uh, purposes of God by demons literally cohabitating with the people that God had created and create some kind of demon-possessed people who were the worst of all people on earth. And in fact, the whole earth was corrupt and God said it was only evil everywhere at all times by everyone. 
including those demon-possessed people that are mentioned in chapter 6. So by the time you get to chapter 8, God drowns the entire human race with the exception of Noah and his family because they're all in full open rebellion against God and against His purposes. This is followed later, as you will remember, in an effort to destroy all male children in Israel, as recorded in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, this would wipe out the purposes of God by wiping out the people of Israel, the Jewish people from whom Messiah was to come. Satan later tried to break uh, the royal line of Christ when Jehoram was killing all his brothers. Second Chronicles chapter 21, the royal line was reduced to one son, and that one had sons. Then the Arabians came to the camp and killed all the sons but one the youngest, Ahaziah, and he lived to reign uh, according to Second Chronicles chapter 22. He ruled only a year, wickedly counseled by his vile mother by the name of Athaliah. But the messianic line is down to one person. He was wounded severely, that one person, and the messianic line hung by a breath. He lived was later killed in a war with Jehu, but not until he had sons, again according to Second Chronicles 22. For a number of years, about six years, the hopes of the world and the purposes of God in the Messiah rested in one life. One life. And God saved that life. And the Messianic line continued. Esther records how the people of Israel were saved by the fact that a pagan king couldn't fall asleep, and the plot to wipe out the Jews and the line of Christ was thwarted. We, we also know Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy the Jews, wipe out the Jewish race. Then came Herod, who slew all the babies, baby boys, in an attempt to kill Christ. Satan tried to destroy Jesus by temptation to get Him to bow down to Him. People of Nazareth tried to destroy Him by throwing Him off a cliff. Peter even tried to keep him from the cross and did the work of Satan. The Romans tried to keep him in the tomb. The, the anti-God, anti-Christ spirit has worked throughout all of human history. That anti-Christ spirit is always at work, and it's at work today in every false religion and every denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ as He is truly revealed in Scripture. It is all anti-God, anti-Christ. It is set to attempt to destroy the work of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God, His redemptive design. But the final Antichrist will be the embodiment of all of these efforts in one figure, the likes of which the world has never seen before that time. Now Paul introduces us to him here, and if you look at verse 3 for just a moment, a few comments, he is identified as the man of lawlessness or the man of sin, and the son of destruction or the son of perdition. He is a lawless blasphemer, as are all antichrists. He lives in defiance of God, defiance of Christ, defiance of divine law. He is destructive of all that is godly and all that relates to God's will and God's plan. This is the final man of sin. This amazing person, Satan's final earthly figure attempting to oppose Christ and blaspheme God, plays a crucial role in uh, the last days at the time of our Lord's return. He will be the culmination of all 
hatred toward God, all hatred toward Christ, the culmination of all blasphemers, false prophets, false Christ, the ultimate hypocrite, liar, and deceiver. Now the spirit of Antichrist has been in the world and is in the world now and is flourishing under the kingdom of darkness. This individual is the most horrible embodiment of that spirit in one person. Now what kind of a person would this be? I want to help you to understand that by giving you a picture. I, I don't want you to think of Antichrist as some kind of an abstract term. This is an actual person. And there's a model for this person. And I, I, uh, I, I know it's a horrible thing to talk about this individual, but looking through human history, the most obvious and most well-known model for this kind of person is Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler desired to rule the world. He had global designs. Secondly, he decided that he would destroy the Jews. This puts him right at the heart and soul of all anti-God, anti-Christ efforts. He attempted to destroy the Jews in order to destroy the purposes of God through them. Adolf Hitler was not just um, a man bereft of his senses or driven by bizarre passions. He was demon-possessed at the most profound level. He is a prime example of the coming Antichrist who will be Satan-filled. There's a fascinating book called The Morning of the Magicians by Lewis Powells and Jacques Berger, Avon Books, 1969, written the year I came here. It was an amazing thing to read that book, The Morning of the Magicians, because it talks about Adolf Hitler. The authors, who are non-Christians, present the case for Hitler's identification with the demon world, drawn from uh, records of the Nuremberg trials, for example, thousands of books and reviews, and the testimony of many eyewitnesses. And here are the things they say about Adolf Hitler. Here's a quote. It is impossible to understand Hitler's political plans unless one is familiar with his basic beliefs and his conviction that there is a magical relationship between man and the universe. And by saying that, they, they introduce the reader into the world of mysticism in which Hitler lived. Deep, dark connections with demonic powers. He saw the miracle of his own destiny, Hitler did, as an, an action of unseen supernatural forces. The writers go on to say, the probable explanation for Hitler's deeds is the existence of a magical puzzle, a powerful and satanic mystical current. We shall never be safe from Nazism or rather from certain manifestations of the satanic, which through the Nazis cast its dark shadow over the world until we have roused ourselves to full understanding of the most fantastic aspects of the Hitlerian adventure, which is to say you can't understand him unless you understand his connections with demons. Some of you will recognize the term the Hollow Earth Society. It goes back a couple of centuries. Eric Norman wrote a book in 1972 on the Hollow Earth Society, and he gives us more insight into Hitler's connection to the demon world. The Hollow Earth Society said basically the earth is hollow, and inside the earth are supernatural beings who live and exist, and they are the superpowers, and if we don't acquiesce to them and find ways to connect with them and submit to them, they will destroy us. The 
this, the Hollow Earth Society, Hitler and his Nazi-oriented secret cult were up to their ears in this Hollow Earth Society. It's a, it's a macabre kind of uh, preoccupation. They actually believed the Earth was hollow and held these advanced beings, and if we don't succumb to them, we're ultimately going to be enslaved to them. Norman writes, Nazi records seized after the fall of the Third Reich indicate that Hitler and his henchmen launched several expeditions into the hollow earth. They were always trying to find the way into the hollow earth, and they, there are lists, I was reading some of them this week, of locations in the world where people believed there was an entrance into the hollow earth to touch these beings. The, this kind of thing is mentioned in Hinduism. It is mentioned in Buddhism. It is mentioned in certain tribes of American Indians, and it was a part of ancient German mythology, which is maybe where Hitler connected to it. It, it is a bizarre kind of thing that uh, prompted Hitler, these demon um, communications prompted Hitler to use children. And that comes directly from the occult perceptions of the Hollow Earth Society. Uh, from that Hollow Earth perspective on children, he developed what was called the adolescent werewolves. These were the young children in black uniforms from the ages about 8 to 13 who had sinister death's heads on their sleeves, and Hitler at one point had 8.8 .8 million of such children, part of this demonic force. His Third Reich was entirely welded to black demonic occultism. Karl Haushofer was one of Hitler's generals and one of the earliest members of the German, what was called the Society of the Golden Dawn, founded for practices of black magic. It was Haushofer who encouraged Hitler, under demon influence, to write Mein Kampf, My Struggle. Haushofer had visited India, China, and Tibet, had adopted Buddhist beliefs, and uh, was essentially initiated into the secret Buddhist society, the occult black society from which the only escape was suicide. And he demonstrated some amazing demonic psychic powers. He had total control over Hitler. Haushofer was the black magician that controlled Hitler. Even Rudolf Hess said, Haushofer is the power, the magician behind Hitler and his demonic legions. That's a quote from Rudolf Hess. Haushofer was the magician uh, Hitler was the medium connecting with the demons. Swastika was a magical sign uh, from the Orient and Europe as well with demonic origins. By 1925, a group of Tibetan monks had moved to Berlin. They were members of a black order swearing allegiance to the powers of darkness, to Satan himself. From that time on, funds were made available by the Nazis to finance expeditions into Mongolia and into Tibet to connect m with more of these black monks to go deeper into the demonic world where Hitler wanted to extract the power to take over the world. When Germany fell, several hundred in SS death heads uniforms were found to be Himalayan Orientals with no IDs. Rosenberg said they were the last of the black monks who had helped Hitler's dark, menacing movement. Rosenberg says in March of 1946, Haushofer killed his wife, then before a Buddhist altar killed himself. His son said he knew his father was the magician behind Hitler. The seven founders of Nazism were all deep into the occult. 
The Morning of the Magician says, and I quote, one cannot help but think of him as a medium, that is Hitler. For most of the time, mediums are ordinary, insignificant people. Suddenly they are endowed with what seems to be supernatural powers. It was in this way, beyond any doubt, Hitler was possessed by forces beyond himself, demonic forces which the individual named Hitler was only the temporary vehicle. Those close to him said that when he spoke openly and in public, he had a completely different voice than his normal voice because demons were speaking through him. Quoting Hitler, he said, What will the social order of the future be? Comrades, I will tell you, overall will reign a new and exalted nobility of whom I cannot speak. He was literally talking about demon rule. He was possessed of Satan. He was the tool by which Satan thought to take demonic control over the whole world. In interviewing witnesses of Hitler's behavior, one eyewitness account was striking to me. Here's the record of an eyewitness. A person close to Hitler told me that he wakes up in the night screaming and in convulsions. He calls for help and appears to be half paralyzed. He is seized with a panic that makes him tremble until the bed shakes. He utters confused and unintelligible sounds, grasping as if on the point of suffocation. Hitler was standing in his room, swaying and looking all around as if he were lost. It's he, it's he, it's he. He's come for me, he groaned. His lips were white. He was sweating profusely. Suddenly he uttered a string of meaningless figures, then words and scraps of sentences. It was terrifying. Suddenly he screamed, there, there, over in the corner. He is there, all the time stamping his feet and screaming. Quoting Hitler, he said, there is another species of humanity which doesn't deserve the name humanity, left as a relic of some baser form of life, created along with hideous, crawling creatures, gypsies, Negroes, and Jews. Hitler goes on, they are as far removed from us as animals are from humans. I do not mean I look on Jews as animals. They are much further removed from animals than we are. They are creatures outside nature, end quote. And so he butchered six million of them and wanted to kill every Jew on the earth. This is the spirit of Antichrist doing essentially what all the others tried to do throughout all of human history, and that is obliterate the purposes of God through the people of Israel. That's why it was the Jews and not some other group of people. Although he said the things he did about the gypsies and, quote, the Negroes, it was the Jews that he was really after. I know that's horrible to consider all of this about Adolf Hitler, but I want you to understand that when we talk about the Antichrist, we're not talking about some kind of abstract idea because here is a model of that kind of person. Anti-God, Antichrist, Satan-driven, demon-possessed, essentially trying to unleash hell on earth. This final man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, will be Satan's tool to destroy Israel, blaspheme God, blaspheme Christ, destroy all worship except the worship of Himself, lead the entire world to hell. And as John said, there are many antichrists. There's a spirit of rebellion at all times against God, against Christ. It's always been there. It's not new, but it will find its way into this incredibly powerful final form. 
A little more obscure and ancient illustration of this is Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who lived about 168 or 170 A.D. He was the king of Syria who resolved to eliminate the Jews from the earth, invaded Jerusalem, killed thousands of Jews, sold others into slavery. He said that if you circumcise a child, you will be killed. A circumcision of a child was punishable by death. He erected an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, offered pigs' flesh on that altar, turned the temple into a brothel, did everything he could to desecrate it, delivered effort, a cold-blooded effort to wipe out Jewish religion, Jewish people, and destroy the worship of the true God. He also was Satan's man. But far worse than Antiochus, far worse than Hitler, will be the final Antichrist. So let's look at the text and see what it says about him in verse 3. He is the man of lawlessness. He is the son of destruction. In other words, he's defined by those two things, lawlessness and destruction. Now, where do we first meet this, this figure? I think the first place you see him in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 38, verse 2. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just mention it. And there he is identified as Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And summing up what Ezekiel is saying there, he's talking about a prince who is to come, a chief prince who is to come, who will be the enemy of God's people, who will lead a coalition of nations against Jerusalem in the end times. The details of this are recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then the next time you see the Antichrist in the Old Testament, you see him in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 and 8, he is identified as the little horn. In Daniel 9, he is the prince who is to come. In Daniel 11, he is the king who does as he pleases. In Zechariah 11, he is the foolish, worthless shepherd. And then sweeping to the end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, he's identified as the beast. He is all these things, but best known to us as the Antichrist in the language of 1 John 2:18, Antichristos, against Christ and in the place of Christ. Now let me have you look in your mind's eye at just the, the things that Daniel had to say because I think this will help define him. And I'll just lay this before you kind of rapid fire. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, it describes him as a little horn who rises from obscurity and becomes a dominant power. The horn is the symbol of power. This is a little insignificant horn who eventually rises to global power. That's Daniel 7 and verse 8. Daniel describes him as having the eyes uh, of a man, eyes like the eyes of a man which indicate his intelligence, a mouth uttering great boasts which indicate both his oratorical skills and his arrogance. Verse 21 of Daniel 7 reveals his hostility towards God's people, waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Verse 23 of that chapter notes that his kingdom will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, tread it down, and crush it. Unlike Hitler, who couldn't pull it off, the final Antichrist will rule the entire world. His empire will be worldwide. Verse 25 of Daniel 7 says he is a blasphemer who will speak out against the Most High. He will make alterations in times and in law. 
that is replacing the world's religious ceremonies and observances with new ones in honor of Himself. And He will even introduce a satanically inspired kind of fake morality. But Daniel tells us also that he will be limited to a brief time, a time, times, and half a time in verse 25. That's one plus two plus a half is three and a half. He'll be limited to a three and a half year period, which is half of the tribulation. His reign of terror for that three and a half will be in full swing. His domination will be so great that he will literally dominate the entire world. But when it comes to an end at the end of three and a half years, the court will convene and God will bring judgment and Antichrist's dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. The sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. He has three and a half year period, the latter half of the seven year tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation. At the end of that, the Lord destroys Him when the Lord comes to set up His own kingdom. Then Daniel 8 has more to say about Antichrist. It says he is insolent. He has a fierce face. He will intimidate people into submission. Daniel 8 verse 25 says he is skilled in intrigue. Uh, we know that his master is Satan himself. Verse 24 of Daniel 8 indicates he will derive his power from Satan. Verse 25, he will magnify himself in his own heart, characterized by arrogant pride. Further, he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will slaughter people not in a war. He'll just slaughter them to be slaughtering them. He will oppose the prince of princes who is the Lord. He will be a blasphemer of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end, he will be broken without human agency, which means God will kill him and he will kill him with the breath of his mouth. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says in the first half of that period of time, the Jews will make a covenant with the Antichrist. He looks, he looks like one who will protect Israel in the opening of the seven years. So they make a firm covenant with him for one week at the beginning of the time of tribulation. He acts as their protector until the middle of the week when he turns on them, desecrates the temple an, an abomination of desolation, our Lord called it in Matthew 24. So halfway through, He shows His true colors, turns on the Jewish people, commits a defiling act in, in the temple, launches the Great Tribulation, and begins an effort to massacre the Jews and massacre all who belong to Christ. Daniel says God will destroy Antichrist at the return of the Lord Jesus. In Daniel chapter 11, he is presented as a ruthless, arrogant, proud king who will do as he pleases, a blasphemer without parallel in human history, magnifying himself above every god, speaking monstrous things against the God of God, showing no regard for the God of his fathers, forsaking the religion of his ancestors. He will magnify himself above all. He has a religion. He has an ancestral religion which he forsakes. We're not sure what it is, but it is interesting. In Daniel 11, it says that he has no interest in the desire of women. He has no desire for women, which may mean he's a homosexual, or it could be that he will be a heterosexual celibate. Some think this indicates he could be a pope. God will judge him and bring him to an end at the return of Christ. Now, what in the world brought this subject up? What is Paul doing talking about all of this 
to the Thessalonian believers. What is the point of this? The point is clear. They had been told, 1 Thessalonians 4 in the first letter, that the Lord was going to snatch them out, that it, the Lord was going to come, the dead in Christ would rise first, all the other believers alive would be gathered to meet the Lord in the air and be taken to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. Comfort one another with these words. Comfort. The comfort comes because we're snatched out. Then you come to chapter 5, and the day of the Lord breaks out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You can look at it for a moment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, verse 2. It'll come, verse 3, with destruction. The day of the Lord is coming with destruction. While the world is saying peace and safety, it all seems good. The Antichrist is ruling the world. The, the one world ruler has brought peace, the false peace, to the world. The first half will be a time of false peace, basically orchestrated by this demonic Antichrist. But when everybody's saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. This is the day of the Lord. The Lord will bring it all to an end in crushing final judgment. But, verse 4, you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of day, not of the night or the darkness. That doesn't apply to you. The rapture in chapter 4, you're out, you're gone. Then the day of the Lord comes, the day of darkness, the day of judgment. That's what he had taught them. That you're going to be raptured before the day of the Lord even comes, before it starts. That's what they had been told. And they knew what the day of the Lord was. Notice it's mentioned, as I said, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and it's mentioned here again in 2 Thessalonians 2 at the end of verse 2, the day of the Lord. It's referred to four times in the New Testament, but 19 times in the Old Testament. And everybody who knew the Old Testament and had been taught the Old Testament knew the character of the day of the Lord. What is it? It is the day of final judgment. Listen to Isaiah 2.12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it will be brought low. Isaiah 13.6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Isaiah 13.9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. Jeremiah 46.10. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. Or Joel 1.15, the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2.11, the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Verse 31 of, Je of Joel 2, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Prophet Amos chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. What good is the day of the Lord to you? Verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Malachi 4.5, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.14, the noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. Zephaniah 1.15, the day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Six times in the Old Testament it's called the day of doom, Four times it's called the day of vengeance. Revelation 6.17 calls it the day, the great day of wrath. The final day. The New Testament calls it His day, the day of wrath, 
the day of wrath and revelation in Romans 2, and the great day of God Almighty. They knew what the day of the Lord was. They also lived in the expectation of that. Even back in Ezekiel, we read, the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. In Joel 2.1, the day of the Lord is coming, it is at hand. Joel 3.14, the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah 14.1, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. In the New Testament, it's even more, more specifically expressed. Matthew 13, Matthew 24, Matthew 25 speaks of the day of the Lord that it is near, that it is coming. Paul writes about that in 1 and 2 Thessalonians as we're looking at. Peter writes about it in 2 Peter 3. The book of Revelation is full of the elements of the day of the Lord. So here's the issue. The Thessalonians had been told that they would be snatched out before the day of the Lord. That's the sequence of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. He'd given them instruction about the rapture or the snatching of the church. They were headed for glory. They were headed for peace. And that's why he said, comfort one another with these words. You're not of the darkness. You're people of the light. You're sons of the day. You're not going to see the darkness of the day of the Lord and the horrors that go with it. However, let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, but we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. I'm going to ask you to listen now as I reiterate what you need to know about this. Panic had set in. Why? They thought they were in the day of the Lord. They thought they were in the day of the Lord. That's why in verse 2 he says, Do not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The situation is presented very clearly. Paul says, look, I have to talk to you about the coming of the Lord. I have to clear up your confusion with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to Him. That's the rapture that collects us into His presence described in 1 Thessalonians 4. The epi-synagogues, from which we get the word synagogue, the, the the collection, the gathering together, the mustering of the saints, if you will, to take us to heaven, John 14, to the place that He's prepared for us, and so shall we always be with the Lord. So Paul says, I want to go back and talk about the coming of Christ and the rapture and remind you of what you must believe. They had been hoping for the rapture, believing that that was next, so they were living in comfort comfort one another with these words, but someone had come along and confused them. Look again at verse 2. You should not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They expected to be taken out before the day of the Lord. They expected that. Before, as chapter 1, verse 7 says, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel and pay the penalty of eternal destruction. They, they were not expecting to be in when the Lord came in judgment fury. 
but they had become confused and convinced they were in the day of the Lord. How did they get to that point? How did that happen? Paul says that you essentially have become shaken and disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Three things there. Triple use of dia indicates three distinct means by which this teaching had come. First, it came by a spirit. What would that be? Oh, some prophetic utterance, perhaps. Perhaps somebody said they had a revelation from the Holy Spirit, and the revelation from the Holy Spirit is that now all this persecution you're suffering, all the difficulties you're going through, um, we're in the day of the Lord now. Somebody saying they got that from the Holy Spirit. Or by a message, lagos, some sermon, some some preacher came and said, the way I look at things, this is the day of the Lord. And so there was a supernatural source that maybe they thought communicated they were in the day of the Lord. And then there was this preacher who came along and preached and said, you know, my assessment is you're in the day of the Lord. But the most troubling of all things was a letter as if from us. Somebody pulled out a forgery, a forgery as if it were written by Paul and the apostles. Whoever was telling them this, and it may have been the, the same person who said, I have a revelation from the Spirit, who said, this is how I see it, and who said, I actually have a letter from Paul and the apostles. It was that letter above all things that so troubled them because maybe, maybe Paul changed his mind. Maybe Paul missed the, 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 the true revelation the first time, but they were claiming Paul and apostolic authority for the idea that the Thessalonians were in the day of the Lord. And it was terribly troubling. That's how it affected them. They were shaken. They were in a state of shock, fear, alarm, and confusion. Shaken from their composure. Literally broken loose from their mind. Nas. Their thinking was completely disturbed. Shaken suggests a rocking motion, shaking up and down like a ship tossed on the waves or a building in an earthquake shaken loose from its foundation. They were tossed wildly by this teaching. They were disturbed, which means alarmed or frightened. Has the idea of tumult, fear, even crying aloud, clamor, nervous panic. because they were in the day of the Lord. And they knew what the day of the Lord was. I just read you everything the Old Testament said. Now listen, this is very important as I wrap it up for today. If they had been taught a post-tribulation rapture, if they had been taught, as some people believe, that they were going to be raptured at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the day of the Lord, then being in the day of the Lord would have been good news because it would mean that the rapture was coming. But obviously, they had believed what Paul said, that they would be snatched out before that would happen. And now to think they're in it means we either missed it or that was not accurate. And to support the idea that that was not accurate, they had a forged letter purported from Paul. And they were in terror 
because they were heading into the full fury of the day of the Lord. Now, let me say this again. The only reason they were in terror was because they expected a rapture before the day of the Lord, not at the end. They're now terrified because they're in the day of the Lord. Paul writes this to comfort them. How does he comfort them? By saying, you've been deceived. You've been shaken from your composure. You've been disturbed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That's not true. Verse 3 says, it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. You haven't seen him. You don't need to be disturbed. You're not in the day of the Lord. Down at the bottom of the chapter, verse 13, look at this. You don't need to live in fear. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, follow this. You were chosen. This is election for the foundation of the world. You were chosen for salvation, sanctification, glorification. Not judgment. So then, brethren, verse 15, stand firm and hold to the tradition which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. And then he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Be encouraged. Be comforted. You're not in the day of the Lord. You will never be in the day of the Lord. We have a, a blessed hope. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. We have that blessed hope in anticipation of the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If a post-tribulational rapture was true, Paul would have said to them, be glad you're in the day of the Lord because that means the rapture's near. But he says, be comforted. You're not going to be in the day of the Lord. Be comforted. It may seem to some people adventurous to say, well, we're, we're going to go through the tribulation. But if you understand what it is and you read what Scripture says about that and the unleashing of the day of the Lord kinds of terminal judgment by God, and you understand what it says in Revelation 6 through 19, all the horrors of the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. That's not something you want to experience, or do you want your family and the ones you love to experience it either? We, we would live in fear. We would be like them. We would be shaken from our composure. We would be profoundly agitated and disturbed if we thought we were going to go into the day of the Lord and take all of that kind of judgment even though it didn't fall on us, falling around us, it would be overwhelmingly horrific. 
they needed to hear again that they were not going to be in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was going to be when God comes in judgment and He will destroy that man of lawlessness and his demonic powers and all his demonic allies and all his human allies at his return with the sword of his mouth, the breath of his mouth. He'll destroy them all, cast them all into the lake of fire. But during that period of tribulation, the Antichrist, the Antichrist will be anti-Israel. He will make a pact with them and seem like their friend. Halfway through, he desecrates it and begins to want to slaughter them as all the enemies of God have always done with Israel. The Antichrist's main objective would be to destroy the Jews and therefore thwart the purposes of God. You're not going to be there, he says. We live in the promise of eternal comfort and good hope. And our hope is that the Lord is going to come and take us away as He promised. So He says to them, look, you are not in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord can't come until the Antichrist shows up. And obviously, He's not here. Before that even happens, the rapture will take place. Now that's the introduction, first two verses for this morning. From there on, we're going to answer the question, how do you avoid confusion and fear regarding the Lord's return? How do you avoid confusion and fear regarding the Lord's return? We'll pick it up next time. Father, again, it's, uh, it's just a thrilling experience to hear Your Word unleashed in all its truth. We thank You that You have prepared a home for us and You'll come and take us to be with You forever, that we have been saved from the wrath to come, that we are anticipating our gathering together to You in glory, and we will come back with You when You come to set up Your kingdom. We thank You that Your promise to us from before the foundation of the world is salvation, sanctification, glorification. We'll be taken to glory before the day of the Lord breaks loose in this world. We thank You for the blessed hope, the good hope, the good hope by grace that comforts our hearts. Life is hard enough in a fallen world full of antichrists, full of anti-God hatred. The spirit of Antichrist is everywhere. And it seems like it's escalating. It's challenging to live in this world. But we know that You have promised us we will never live in that horrendous time in the future when Satan's man, a thousand times worse than Hitler, will rule the entire planet and bring about evil that will cause Your day of the Lord wrath to be unleashed. We thank You that we'll be with You, gathered around Your throne, having the marriage supper of the Lamb, receiving our eternal rewards, and come back with You in glory for Your kingdom. Amazing truth and wonderful promises. We're unworthy, but so grateful. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.
You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
millions of years of no evolution? This is Ken Ham, and we produce the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. According to evolutionary ideas, all of life has evolved from a common ancestor some 4 billion years ago. Now, if this was true, we'd expect to see huge amounts of change from the fossil record to modern times. But we frequently find organisms that look virtually identical to ones living today. A recent study looked at flowers trapped in amber, a kind of dried tree sap. Researchers determined that these flowers have beautiful scents just like flowers do today. In other words, flower scents hadn't changed in supposed millions of years. So where's the evolution? It's not there because the history in God's word is true. There's so much more to discover at AnswersRadio.com. Find thousands of articles, videos, and much more that will encourage you in your faith by going to AnswersRadio.com.
an eternal seventh day? This is Ken Ham with the passion for sharing God's word and the gospel with the world. Some old earth creationists argue that day seven of creation week is an ongoing day. And that's because they say the phrase evening and morning isn't used at the end of the seventh day. But this final day was a day of rest, not a day of activity. That's why we don't find phrases such as, and God said, or let there be, used in this final day either. And the book of Exodus mentions that God created everything in six days and rested one day. That's why we have a seven-day week. The seventh day isn't an ongoing day of rest that somehow means the other days weren't literal days. No, God created in six literal days and rested for one. Listen to this program again or view a complete transcript when you visit our faith-affirming website at AnswersRadio.com. Get equipped to think biblically at AnswersRadio.com.
plants before the sun? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Many Christians claim the days in Genesis were each millions of years because, you see, they want to agree with prevailing supposed scientific opinion on the age and formation of the universe. Now, the secular model teaches that the stars formed first, then the earth formed as a hot molten blob. But the Bible teaches a watery earth first, then the sun, moon and stars three days later. And the Bible teaches plants were created on day three, one day before the sun. But according to evolutionary ideas, plants came long after the sun. To add millions of years into Genesis, you have to change the order of events. We need to trust God's Word. Plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com and be encouraged to trust God's Word from the very beginning at AnswersRadio.com. Savior and 
A day of prayer for our nation. This is Ken Ham, President of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. Today is the National Day of Prayer here in America. Now it's a day of united prayer for our nation. And I encourage every Christian to stop and pray for America and her leaders. And here are three things to pray for. One, pray that our religious freedoms will be preserved as they're increasingly under attack. Two, pray that our leaders will pass legislation that affirms and protects the sanctity of all human life. And finally, pray that God will bring a reformation in churches across America so that they'll stand boldly on the authority of God's word. I hope you'll join with hundreds of thousands of other Christians to lift up our nation before our Heavenly Father. Discover more about what's going on in our nation and how we can think biblically about it when you go to AnswersRadio.com. There's more to learn at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions, billions years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the By far. Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I've changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was. As long ago as that was. Have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, Yeah, 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. Would Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. Saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, Never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Do mutations drive evolution? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. Many evolutionists believe mutations are the driving force behind evolution. Now, mutations are mistakes in DNA, and most mutations are very harmful to an organism and cause disease and death. Some go unnoticed. Only a select few are beneficial and only under very specific conditions. Now, these mistakes can't account for the remarkable variety and intricacy we see in creation. Mutations simply don't support evolutionary ideas about the past. But starting with God's Word, we can understand them. God's creation was originally perfect, but it was cursed because of sin. And once sin entered, mutations began. Want to learn more about science and the Bible? Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com for more on the truth of God's Word. The place to go for answers is AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crashing our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch cash from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed of what conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambient. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and it's bright in the might in the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost, that he found, though. He was 
cream didn't floss all around, but remain for the manger, the cross to the crown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope and then. R to the I to the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Riffing on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence. Prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The abba of astronomy. He's potter. We are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees. You gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery. To poverty and robbery. To resurrected bodily. Apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery. And scholarly snobbery. That don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before thee. Preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old to New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross. And compensated his life, death, and resurrection. Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all. Freedom from the effects of the fall. Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God.
on the night before Jesus was crucified, he said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He went into the garden, fell on his face, and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. Luke 22:44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. Three times he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What is this cup that caused Jesus such agony? Many believe it was the way he was about to die. Indeed, crucifixion was such a painful form of punishment, a new word was coined to describe it, excruciating. But many Christians, beginning with the apostles, have rejoiced to suffer for the gospel. Why was Jesus in dread? Because the cup he was to drink from was the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's that cup Jesus drank for his own when he died on the cross for our sins. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins when we understand the text. What is the purpose of intimacy? Why did God create this? Clearly he did. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the things necessary to do that act. It was his idea. What was the purpose? Number one, procreation. God wants us to make little image bearers, to populate the earth for his pleasure so that he can see more image bearers come to Christ and be glorified. So procreation is one reason for intimacy. Reason number two, pleasure. It's an enjoyable act. And God gave that to us. It is his kind gift. And so there should be nothing wrong with a husband and wife having that particular act and enjoying it. It's okay. Perhaps you grew up in a home where intimacy was like, oh, 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 no, we don't even think about that or talk about this. Now, of course, we don't want to be salacious about it, but Christians, mature Christians, should talk about it as something that young people can absolutely look forward to so that on the night that they are married, they don't have to feel ashamed for something that God created to be pleasurable. Reason Number three, picture. It is a picture of many things, actually. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17, Paul is describing a man who joins himself to a harlot. And in verse 17, he talks about us being one spirit with God. What is the act of intimacy? It's showing oneness. In other words, it's showing us a picture of our relationship with our God. Picture number two, it is also a picture of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, the man plays the role of Jesus, the woman plays the role of the church, and when they are loving each other and serving each other in this very intimate act, it is a picture of our union with Christ. It is a picture of 
the gospel. Picture number three, the act of intimacy. It's a picture of heaven. In a non-sexual way, the enjoyments and pleasures of heaven will so supersede the lesser act of intimacy, but that is the act that probably comes closest to helping us to understand how amazing it is going to be when we are in heaven with our glorified bodies, in union with our God in a non-sexual way, the lesser helps us understand the greater. All of those reasons demonstrate how profound intimacy is and why we should be teaching our kids about this act in a non well there's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. That's that's you're feeling the residue of the fall because of that. But we also want to teach them about these things to give them a lofty, higher, more profound view of sex. Why? Well, reason number one, so they understand it when they are married and it can actually do that. But reason number two, it will help the young person and you and me to not do anything to join our bodies with a harlot. What are we doing when we do that in any form? including pornography. You can join yourself to pixels. We are trashing the picture that God has created intimacy to be. We are marring what it is supposed to be pointing toward. We make a hash of lofty, eternal, great things when we do such a lonely act as joining our bodies with a harlot. In other words, not our spouses. Maybe, just maybe now, you can understand while perhaps you or somebody you know feels so rotten after they do that deed. After watching pornography, I don't think there's any man who goes, that was, that was such a great idea. You know what? I'm going to feel better for the rest of the day. <laughs> there's something shameful about it. Why is it so profound. Why does 1 Corinthians 6.16 say no sin so affects the body like the sin of intimacy with somebody who is not your covenant partner? Answer, it abuses the whole idea of procreation, which is the purpose of intimacy. It, it lowers the idea of pleasure because we're not doing it the way that God told us to do it, and it breaks, shatters, crashes the picture that it is supposed to paint for us. Yeah, Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs> it's like deja vu, right? 
Hey yo, I'm back, but nobody was asking where I've been Cause Christ in the music is no longer the hot trend Logic says, well maybe I should just stop then But I never got into this for a spot in the top ten I do this for one reason, Jesus the true king, son To help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1 And though the rap world is ever crowded If heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000 I know you out there, I still get the emails Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail It's founded on the rock, and the gospel never stops So we dropping the topic, whether it's popular or not Sin is not just toxic And the clock is going to stop God is not to be boxed With the wrath of God is burning hot We were locked in sin's closet Our conflict was cosmic God plotted to stop it Hit the demonic with a shot I was copping narcotics Agnostic with a plot No optics for the knowledge Of the God who often not Jesus rocked me with the gospel And it tied me up in knots So I hopped in a rocket And met the prophet at the top Yo That's just another way of saying I met God in the scriptures But we just gonna let that breathe For a second You know what I mean The Bible says He was been forgiven Much loves much you want to talk about BC a little bit. My depravity was total, not small like pops. I was chained to sin, I couldn't take off the locks. I thought I was a player, a match with the flavor. Say, so yeah, I know what the time is, but I ain't read Isaiah. I would chuckle daily as I paid for disgrace. My eyes were always puffy like I got sprayed with mace. I would toot my horn at parties, and I would do bars. Got so intoxicated, I was ready to do Mars. Notorious for acting pretty silly in my city, Philly. Friends hear about it and be like, whoa, did he really? Because I played dirty, Bill Lynn. Beer style, through great mercy, spirit filled and dear child. Went from so gritty to headed to a gold city. In Christ I shine, the world's like no biggie. Whatever time to sing, I'm putting faith on the song. 112 displayed in John, the way to respond. When his patience runs out, then it's time for the rod, man. Microwave wrath of God, fam. That's why, because of Christ, I got mad joy. All I'm saying is, I used to be a bad boy. <laughs> But nowadays, I'm regenerated, born again from above, fam. How else can I say that? Went from various vices to a kid that's married to Christ, using literary devices to spit is very precise. My conversion to the master was so dramatic. I just wanted to be an ambassador or fanatic. The gospel was my tonic. With Christ, I couldn't lose. But to walk with God like Enoch, I knew I couldn't cruise. This walk is a beast, but nothing's greater than the cross. Saw the mark of the east and the raiders of the laws. While power records were choosing to carry G-Unit, I was on that revolutionary theme music. The brothers from the Lou held it down as well But we noticed a big shift in 2012 Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism Christian hip-hop found a different algorithm And crossed over without taking the crossover Made us all sober years later, is it all over? Trip asked me if I was still motivated I was quiet, but I wanted to say no, I hate it Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion I love them as brothers in Christ, but not their conclusions They want to reach the world, by all means, keep pursuing it But tell me, why they got it? This the church while they doing it That's what I wanted to say But I ain't say it though But no more laying low I want them to play it slow And I ain't dissing them My prayers are the proof Like Boaz without Ruth Is unity without truth CHH is like gorillas in the mist With no brotherly love It's like Philly don't exist What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere Cats appear most concerned About a rap career Brothers overseas Being slain in the sand While we're vain in our plan Taking fame in some fans And I ain't got time to philosophize Satan got a plot Device. I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize. On top of all that, Donald Trump's the president. It's all good though, cause Jesus Trump's the president. So more than ever, I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled. And we ain't never gonna stop, word to Corey Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. 
In the gospel, God addresses our depravity The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony He rose from the grave with the funding grace And when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess No rest was left till Jesus put death to death The beauty of the victory truly is a mystery The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history Before the cross, they were saved on credit After the cross, we've been saved on debit Since our champion in the great war suffered We gon' proclaim his death like the Lord suffer So welcome to the Still Jesus Project Yo, we just getting started and we got a lot left That was Shailen with Random Thoughts 3 from his album, Still Jesus. And next we have from Wretched Radio, uh, this is Todd Frio, and it's called Alistair Vague is Like a Dove on a Boom. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Frio. You are either going to love this or your head's going to explode. Or both. This is Wretched Radio KKLA. It is a Christian radio station in Los Angeles, California. Several high-profile preachers are on there, including one Alistair Begg. Uh, We like Alistair Begg, and that is why we were very excited to see a debate happening at the Reagan Presidential Library, hosted by radio talk show host on the Salem Network, Hugh Hewitt, with Dennis Prager, also on Salem Radio. Ask a Jew, ask a Gentile. That was the premise. Hugh is the moderator. And this is so wonderful and frustrating to watch all at the same time. What's wonderful? Alistair Begg. Oh, he's like he's like a, a Scottish dog on a bone. That maybe was... That was maybe my Swedish accent. I can't keep the two countries straight. No one can. No, I I think think so. Scotty. Yeah. Highland Terrier. Lady in the Tramp. You were about as accurate as that Scotty Scottish accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got kids still in that age. It's been a while for me to know if that is a true statement. I don't make my kids watch that. I I will trust you on that. On the frustrating side was Dennis Prager just breaking our hearts. Every evangelical loves Dennis Prager. When he speaks on social issues, political issues, his insights, his demeanor, so powerful. And yet when he talks theology, he can just make you bonkers. Here is Dennis Prager with his opening comments at Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. I don't have an issue with people who believe Jesus is the Messiah. The Jewish issue has has never been the messianic issue. Jews have believed that various Jews at different times have been the Messiah. They have never been, they've never created or been ostracized. They've never created a different movement or a different religion or been ostracized. The issue for Jews was the divinity claim that Christianity ah. was, not the messianic claim. If the only claim people made about Jesus was he's the Jewish Messiah, then they would have been Jews for Jesus, literally. Jews who believe in, in Jesus as the Messiah. It's, it's the Trinitarian and, and uh, divinity claims that caused the creation of, of a second religion. Mm, well, yes, it's not really a second religion per se, but Dennis Prager basically saying, look, if you guys didn't say that Jesus was God, I got no problem with him being the Messiah. 
here's the problem. On the left side of the book, which Dennis adheres to, that book claimed that the Messiah would be divine. Where do you get that from? John. Well, I'm opening up my Bible to Isaiah and chapter 52 and chapter 53. This is the gospel that was preached 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, describing exactly what this Messiah would be like, and it includes claims of divinity. It starts in chapter 52 and verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. All right? So the servant is going to be a man. The verse continues, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Hmm, that's no normal man. That's a special kind of man. It goes on to describe the marring of this fellow. Of course, it gets into chapter 53. He was despised and rejected, bruised, crushed, smitten, afflicted. He was ground to powder, so disfigured you couldn't tell that he was a human being. He was taken from prison and from judgment, for he was cut off from the land of the living, and they made his grave with the wicked, prediction after prediction after prediction fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days. What? How can you die be cut off, and yet see your seed. The only way that can happen is if you are divine and you are eternal. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. So he dies and gets an inheritance. He gets the spoils of his victory. These are claims of eternality. These are claims of divinity. Furthermore, when you go to the New Testament, Jesus himself made those claims. So when Dennis states, I don't have a problem with Messiah Jesus, as long as you don't say that he was divine, then you don't understand what Messiah Jesus taught, that he is indeed divine. I am. I am the door. I am the bread. I am the living. Before Abraham was, I am all, all statements of divinity equating himself with God. The Father and I are one. And so I'm afraid, with all due respect to Dennis, whom I truly like, I am not buying his tale. Because he doesn't understand, apparently, what Jesus actually said about himself. And I don't see Dennis actually living out what he's claiming. If, if he believes, then, that Jesus is the Messiah, it's just the divine part, then he should just say to us Christians, look, I just don't buy your divinity claims, but... Thumbs up on the Messiah business, but he doesn't do that. Here's where it starts to get good. Alistair Begg, responding to Dennis Prager, and you are going to notice something in this presentation. Ask a Jew, ask a Gentile. There could be all kinds of questions that get asked, but where does Alistair Begg, like a Scottish dog in a bone, keep the subject? On Jesus Christ. Well, you know, when you read the gospel records and you see the reaction of the Jews to the claims of Jesus um, and the disappointment that they felt, the clearer he became, it would seem that they anticipated that when the Messiah came, everything, as Dennis says, would be put to rights. So the oppression 
for example, if the Roman authorities would be taken care of, uh, they would be established in their own land, if you like, they would be secure and so on. And so that expectation, which I don't think was the right expectation, was not met in Jesus. He begins with Jesus, he talks about Jesus some more, and then he ends with Jesus. When John the Baptist steps forward, he says of this, this man, this Galilean carpenter, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that the expectation of Judaism into the very heart of the Pentateuch is that in this sacrificial system, there will eventually be a sacrifice that out-sacrifices all the previous sacrifices. And Jesus steps forward and he says, I actually am that one. The reaction, of course, on the part of those who heard him speak was to crucify him. You know, I, I hate to be critical of Alistair Begg, but his Scottish accent is terrible. So nevertheless, he is not going to relent despite everything that Dennis Prager says. Alistair Begg just keeps banging away. Prepare for some heartache from Dennis Prager. I believe that God wants the world to come to Mount Sinai. So to me, I have long ago believed that Jesus was the vehicle of my God, the God of Sinai, to bring the world to Sinai. The Jews, as it were, needed help. <laughs> we haven't done a great job bringing the world to Sinai. Christ but Jesus did. <clears throat> Completely backwards. Jesus doesn't bring people to Sinai. Sinai brings people to Jesus. The laws are a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Christ isn't a schoolmaster to bring us to the laws. The laws are a mirror, a curb, and a guide. The laws don't save. The laws condemn. As you're going to hear, Dennis Prager, he is a big fan of the laws of Moses. Why were they given? To silence the mouth, to bring the whole world guilty before God. The laws were not given to save. The laws were given to demonstrate we need saving. Then when we get saved, the laws kick in. Think for a moment, if you will, about the Exodus, which I am sure Dennis Prager believes actually happened. Which came first, deliverance or the laws? God redeemed, he rescued his people out of Egypt. Then he gives the laws. That's the order of affairs. We are rescued, then we do good. We can't do good before we are saved. Nobody does good. No, not one. Alistair Begg, I'm telling you, this guy, whatever, whatever they put in his Scottish coffee, it just kept him so focused. I would actually challenge what he has just said, that the um, purpose of the Bible as it unfolds is clearly not for the world to be brought to Sinai, but for the world to be brought to Christ. Amen. And that the temple in Jerusalem, which uh, represented both the presence of God and the ongoing plans of God, um, is no longer the place to which men and women are coming. Because Jesus infuriated the Jewish people of his day by announcing to them, you know, you could tear down this temple and in three days it will be built again. And they said, it's taken so long to build a temple. He said, but you don't understand. I am the temple. 
beautiful more Breaker versus Big next on Wretched Radio. Find out more about Wretched at Wretched.org. That's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot O-R-G, Wretched.org. And you want to find out find our website, truthbetotalradio.com, truthbetotalradio.com.
that was Goldfish with Wapaka. So I found more about them. Go to GoFishGuide.com. G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S dot C-O. GoFishGuide.com. And show is almost over, so I'm going to end it with... Uh, we're on Sundays 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. and ride your Pacific time. And so we're going to end the show with the Yancey Friends and the VI Billy. Bye for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.